Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm very pleased to be speaking with Dr. Joshua Rasmussen, who is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Azusa Pacific University. He is the author of Defending the Correspondence Theory of Truth and Necessary Existence. He lives in Azusa, California with his wife Rachel and their four children. And his particular area of specialty is philosophy of mind and metaphysics. Thank you very much indeed, Josh, for joining us on the program. Thank you. It's great to be with you. You are very welcome indeed. It's a privilege to have you on the program. Now, today we're going to be talking about your new book, How Reason Can Lead to God. Um, although I'm going to start by saying that when I saw the front cover, I thought it said, God to lead can reason how. <laughs> Everybody does that. Yes. I actually wonder if that could be sort of a metaphor for the book. So the, the goal of the book is to flip your worldview upside down. Yes. And so you read the title upside down. <laughs> yes, I mean, it, I just have to explain to listeners, it's because there's a staircase, you see, and at the bottom left-hand uh, corner, it says, how, with, a, with a, a picture of somebody's head, you know, and it, you, as you climb the staircase, you go up the sentence, you see, how reason can lead to God. But of course, your eye, first of all, looks at the top, and it sees God, and it goes down, God yeah. to lead can reason how, but uh, I, got, <laughs> I got there in the end. Anyway, so, uh, how reason can lead to God, which has the subtitle, A Philosopher's Bridge to Faith, which I found to be an excellent thought-provoking and actually compelling read because I think it gathers together so many lines of reasoning from philosophical, theological thought uh, to invite readers to consider really very fundamental questions about reality. And it does so, and this is very important, it does so in a very approachable way, in a very rewarding way. And I'm going to start by quoting uh, Stephen Evans, what he had to say about this, because I thought this was a very good way of summing it up. He's uh, Stephen Evans, for those of you who don't know, is Professor of Philosophy and Humanities at Baylor University. And I'm going to quote him here. This short book contains a bold, original and provocative argument that shows how reason can lead to lead a person who is genuinely seeking truth to God. It is written in simple, ordinary language and makes no appeal to authority, although Rasmussen appeals only to truths that he thinks should be universally accepted. A good deal of the force of the book stems from the personal story of Rasmussen himself. His courage and honesty draw the reader into a similar journey. So we're going to get into the details of your book in a moment, but I want to start with what Stephen Evans notes there, your personal story, which is in the book, because mm. uh, some of that does does actually connect with me in some ways, and I think it will with many of the listeners as well. So uh, could you tell us how you came to believe in, well, I'm going to use the word God. Uh, you actually avoid that word for quite a long time in the book, but yeah. how you came to believe in God and, and what that journey of discovery was like for you. Yeah, I think one of the worries that some people would have when they see a book like this is that the person who's writing the book is kind of rationalizing what they already believe. Hmm. And this book is an articulation of the arguments that brought me into believing in God after a point in my life where I just had no idea. <laughs> I still remember lying down on my bed, looking up at my ceiling and just wondering, is there an ultimate foundation of existence that loves me? Uh, is God real? And and so, and I remember trying to figure out first, like, what do I actually think? And at that moment, I didn't have a view. Um, I couldn't say which was more likely. Um, and so then I began to study the uh, philosophy of existence. I remember going to the library. I checked out some different books. Um, my dad gave me a book. I read books by people arguing for God and people who were arguing against God. And I remember I would just outline the different arguments and 
as I began to investigate these things, I began to find some what I might like to call clues that lead to other clues that helped me to discover a pathway of reason that helped me also discover not just whether God exists, but what it even means for God to exist. That's why I don't use the word God mm. until towards the end. Yes. I find that a lot of people, they have barriers to God based on certain conceptions of God that are limited. And, um, and of course, all of us are limited in our conception. So I, I wait until reason reveals enough about ultimate reality. And then, oh, well, this ultimate reality has these characteristics. We can now call that God. Yeah. And so we're discovering not just whether there's a God, but also the very nature of God, what that even means. Mm. That is indeed one of the charms of the book. Uh, and you're very open about what you're doing at the beginning, as you are indeed in this conversation. You're saying, yes, you are leading to God, but then you step back from it and say, now let's take that intellectual journey and see where that uh, leads. Although well, yeah, you've, to you've, you've told us where you intend it to lead, but it's, it is a pathway of reason. We'll get into that in some detail. I just wanted to ask you one more thing about uh, your background. From your book, I get the impression that you were brought up as a Christian, or in a Christian, you have a Christian background, yes. but then you say that you met somebody particularly, I think it was in a biology class or something, who brought quite fundamental challenges to your belief. Uh, yes, yeah, this is just exactly mm. what I was going to add, was that I had this desire to have a, a worldview that would be encouraging to me, because this is the worldview that I was raised with. Yeah. Um, but then, uh, yeah, I met somebody at school who didn't believe in God, and and I began to have these conversations with him. And, and the thing that struck me was that he was a real person with real honest questions. And I couldn't just make up a story of why he didn't believe. Like he just didn't want to believe or uh, he really did believe but was sort of hiding from God. You know, it, yeah. it's like once I got to know him personally, it was pretty evident that his questions were honest questions. And so mm -hmm. he caused me to begin to really think about these things. Honestly, and I remember coming to this point of decision where I felt in my heart a conflict between really facing reality as it is. Like, what is the truth? Like, really? Like, really? What is it? Not what is right. not what is a way that I could sort of argue myself into or what is a way that I could sort of be justified in believing because you can be justified in believing things that aren't even true. So, you know, so what is actual reality? And, and I remember I felt like I had to decide to face scary reality rather than to sort of hide behind safe people. Um, and, and so he, yeah. Can I, can I just, just stop you just for a second? Because you said you can be justified in believing things that aren't even true. And I know where you're coming from with that, but that sounds a bit weird. I take it to mean that you can be, you know, you can be rationally justified. You know, you're performing your rational duties, but there are some, you believe things that are just turn out not to be true, but you haven't done anything wrong. Is that the kind of thing you mean? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, like you could be a kid and you might believe in Santa Claus. Maybe all the people you respect and yes. trust yes. tell you that Santa Claus is real. Yes. And so you believe that um, and you're fully justified. It's not like you're doing something wrong in your mind. You know, you just don't know better. Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah. And but then but that it's, it's easier to be justified because it can be based on ignorance. You just don't know. You haven't looked out beyond your culture to investigate things as they are. You said at one point in describing your story that you uh, you were tempted to cleverness and uh, you, you imply that this can really get in the way of actually seeking truth. It can look like trying to seek truth, but it kind of masquerades, it can masquerade as looking for the truth. Can you explain more what you mean by that? Yeah, we can seek so many different things. And as I entered into my career as a philosopher, one of the things that 
philosophers are sometimes tempted by is, I mean, we, we pride ourselves as truth seekers. Mm. Like that's what, you know, we identify ourselves as ones who love the truth yes. more than like anything else. You know, we'll sacrifice comfort for truth. But in order to signal that we love the truth, sometimes what we'll do is we will pursue other things besides the truth, which is kind of ironic. So we'll pursue cleverness or independent thinking or, you know, questioning common sense. Because if we just believe common sense, maybe that shows we don't have the courage to face reality. Mm. <laughs> but sometimes this emphasis on independent thinking and cleverness is, is distracting because now we're not actually seeking the truth. Uh, we're, we're seeking to be clever. And so there's all sorts of other things you could seek other than the truth. And it takes work to decide, okay, I want to face reality. I want to find the truth. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that takes uh, intention. Well, we are going to do some work with this interview, so I'm going to tell people straight away that there's a possibility that not all of this interview will be, let's say, the easiest of interviews to follow. Not because of the language that's used, hopefully, that we'll try to explain everything. And as I say, Josh, in this book, explains goes to great length to explain as straightforwardly as possible. But nevertheless, it is a very abstract collection of things that we'll be talking about. So you will have to concentrate. Um, and maybe even have to listen to it twice. Oh, there we are. <laughs> anyway, um, just before we go on, there's one thing I did want to ask because I did speak to Dr. Mitch Stokes a couple of years ago and he studied under Alvin Plantinga at Notre Dame. I just wondered whether you'd done your PhD under Plantinga. Did, yes. Did you indeed? Yes, he was. Yes. Yeah, he was my research advisor for a few years. And uh-huh. that guy is more impressive in person than in print. And he's very impressive in print. <laughs> Uh, you know, so and I would meet impressive people and in person, they would be as impressive as in print. But Planiga would be more impressive. We would talk about things that he had never written about, Ooh. things I had been thinking about, very specific things. And I would bring up these questions and then he would have these very worked out, detailed, thoughtful answers and, and, and replies. And And I'm like wondering, how does he... <laughs> How has he ever explored this territory before? This is obscure stuff in set theory. It's like, well, he's memorized the axioms. He He's just been thinking about these things, even if he hasn't written about it. So, yeah, that guy is very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Did you, do you know Mitch Stokes, by the way? No. Oh, okay, yeah. I was just interesting that planting a style humor comes out a number of times in in this book, and I'll see if I can identify those as we go through. Mm. Um, okay, well, let's talk about some of the detail of your book. Now, one of your early chapters is called The Bridge of Reason. You impress upon us that reason is a tool of discovery, mm. um, and I think you liken reason to a telescope through which we can see things that are far off that the naked eye can't see. Uh, w- there are no contradictions anywhere in the universe. Say that again. Yeah. There are no con- that's a very interesting exactly. point. There are no contradictions. Yes. Yeah. So, like, you can know that in the soil of Jupiter, you're not going to find a green alien that's also not green. <laughs> okay. You will find no square circles under there either. And we haven't even gone. You know, we haven't looked. But you can look through the okay. telescope of reason. It will take you to the edges of reality, and you can know some things. And it's important to point this out because Mm. when we consider these deep questions, sometimes people will worry that you can't really have knowledge at this level of depth. Mm. It's too deep. In fact, intellectual humility should inspire us to say we don't know when we don't know. But logic actually can give us some sight about everything. We can see to the edges of reality that there are no contradictions. And that's not it. We can see more things. 
Yeah. Um, and, and part of the bridge of reason is the whole goal is to help people see by the light of reason some of the deepest things with clarity. Yeah. Now, I accept that. However, just for the sake of somebody listening who might not, a question, why, why do you say that? Can you spell out why it is the case that a contradiction cannot be true anywhere? Yeah. So think about an example, right? So imagine that there is an elephant that is also not an elephant. Okay. And I'm not talking about some kind of um, quantum indeterminacy, if that makes sense. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not talking about something you just don't know. I'm talking about, right. no, it is both an elephant and it isn't at all an elephant in any sense. Yeah. Okay. And when you consider that example, your mind has the ability to just see that that cannot be true. It's as clear as anything. Um, you know, if you can't believe that, then you can't really believe anything because, mm. I mean, how do you know that true is not false? If, yes, if you can't yes. believe, right? <laughs> if, if, yeah. if you do a scientific experiment and you're like, oh, the best explanation of the data is the fire, you know, and it's like, but somebody else says that is the best explanation of the data, but true is also false. So the fire is not the fire. And so therefore, you know, it's not the case, you know, it, yeah, that, yeah. That, then you couldn't know anything, right? Absolutely. Um, but what, but once you have that basic principle down, then that basic principle gives you information about everything because now you can infer from that principle that there are no contradictions anywhere at, at, at any place. So it gives you information about everything, but it doesn't tell you everything about everything, does it? It's, Good. Yes. 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 Good distinction. Okay. So you're not doing that in the book. You are following as far as reason can take you, as it were, anywhere in the universe, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, and you develop this idea that you call the foundation. You argue for the foundation. Now, of course, this turns out to be God. Mm -hmm. You're very open about that. You don't start with the concept God, as uh, the word God, as we've already said, uh, because of all the baggage. You start with this idea of the foundation, and you gradually bring this into focus as you reveal more and more properties, characteristics of this foundation. So can you, this is a big ask here, but can you give us an overview of how you argue for the foundation, what basic steps you go through to build up that picture of ultimate reality? And I want to ask you a few questions as you go. Could you do that? Yeah, sure. So basically, the, the argument for the foundation is an argument designed to answer this basic question about how there could be anything at all. How come there's any existence at all? And this is part of why, you know, you mentioned this book takes us into abstract lands. Mm. It's because we're asking this most fundamental question, and I'm not making any assumptions. So I'm not even assuming at the outset that there is anything. Yeah. In fact, that's the first step. How do we know there's something? And I make an argument that there's this basic awareness of your own existence. You know, if you deny the existence of anything, then your very denial exists, right? Yeah. But I make no assumptions about what existence is. Maybe it's all an illusion. Uh, no. But then there there is such a thing as an illusion. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> yes. so, so as long yeah. as there's something rather than nothing, there's something. we're on the bridge. We're on the bridge yeah. of reason. And now we can ask, how could there be something? Now, here's the thing, Julian, that, that uh, really... Can I, can I just say, yeah. I, what, I, what I really, really love about this, as soon as you get to that point, you describe it as the blob of everything. I just love that because it says that there is something. Let's give it a name. Yeah, yeah the blob give, of everything just refers yeah, to, the, to the totality of all of uh, what it is. Yes. And now we can wonder, how, how could there be this blob of everything? How is that even possible? <laughs> right. And um, as I've thought about this, well, it leads to a certain puzzle because the things that we ordinarily experience, they come from something else. There's some cause or explanation. You know, I'm, I'm drinking a cup of coffee right now. I'm going to take another sip here. I'll join you. <laughs> ah, that coffee <laughs> mm. didn't just spring from nothing. Okay. It's a something. 
It's, it's a certain little bit of a blob of something. It didn't just come from nothing. It came from something. And so, and this principle seems to be part of our universal experience. So you might think that everything comes from something. You might think this, but that actually leads you to a contradiction because mm. if everything comes from something, then the blob of everything in totality comes from something beyond itself. But there's nothing beyond everything yeah. because everything includes everything. And so it would be a contradiction to say that the blob of everything comes from something. So now we have a counterexample to this general principle. Mm. What solves this puzzle? The puzzle is the things we ordinarily experience come from something. Mm. The blob of everything does not. How is that possible? This is where the foundation theory mm. comes in. The foundation theory says that there is a foundational element of reality. Yeah. This is something that's able to exist on its own. It doesn't have to come from anything. Mm. It has a different kind of nature. It's able to exist without depending on other things. And so then part of my project is to uncover what kind of a thing could be foundational, what kind of a thing could exist on its own. Yeah. And so yeah. that's, yeah, so that's how I begin the bridge. Yeah, okay, so uh, this blob of everything, when you say everything there, you're not talking about the universe, are you? You're, you're talking about something broader than that. You're talking about anything and everything that might include the universe and anything and everything that might be beyond that and just absolutely everything. It isn't the universe. Everything. Yeah. If God exists, God is part of yeah, everything. Part of the blob of everything. You know, yeah. ghosts, yeah. whatever, you know, of course, I don't assume that God exists here, but mm, no. And I, I'm glad you mentioned this because I think sometimes yes. when people think of everything, they think of the universe. In fact, I, I was talking about this topic with my students just this last week. And one of the students brought up not really an objection, but more of a thought that, well, he, he said that God made everything. Um, so the blob of everything was made by God. <laughs> and I had to object to that. In fact, I object to that in the book, that there is this theory that God just made everything. But if God made everything and God is real, then that means God made himself. But God yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. make himself mm. unless God already exists mm, mm. to make himself. Yeah. But then he can't be made unless he doesn't exist. Absolutely. That leads us back to a contradiction. Yeah, okay. So let's just, just get back to base here for the sake of people listening. So when you say everything, you're talking about everything, 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 everything. There's nothing else that can be said. And the reason why you're doing that is because you're starting your analysis. And if you're going to analyze how that everything might be sliced up into different types of things then you have to start with absolutely everything, which is this blob. Exactly. Okay, now before we just go any further here, I'm going to throw in a bit of humor that you have in your book, which I thought sounded a bit like Plantinga, but this may lead us nowhere, but I just want to share this. <laughs> I just love this. Uh, the, the dry philosophical humor. I yeah, go for it. <laughs> I just love these couple of sentences. Right, I'll try and do it as deadpan as I can. Without an ultimate foundation, it remains unexplained why there is anything. The blob of everything would then be like a chicken that pops into existence from nothing. Or the blob is like an everlasting chicken that can fail to exist at any moment, yet randomly never does. I love that. <laughs> I love that sentence. It's so bizarre. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah and part yeah. of the, the goal here is to reduce every alternative to absurdity, right? So, yes, sure. <laughs> but in, in a way that's very, like, matter of fact, right? Like, this is just, in fact, what it is. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> Okay, so um, I don't quite know where to take this, but I mean, where I thought of taking it was something that um, you said was an aspect of this that came as a shock to you, and it certainly struck me, and that was chapter six, where you talk about the purely actual character of the foundation, mm. and you say that this foundation has to have simplicity, explanatory depth, and uniformity, and the thing that really made an impact on me was this business of non-arbitrary limits. Mm. And it's not something that I'd really considered before, but the very idea of saying that the foundation can be, you know, put a number to it or a, an extent to it, 
seems yeah where do you where on earth would you put a number where on earth would you put a limit when you're talking about something that's fundamental mm-hmm. uh, foundational to the whole of reality that seems completely arbitrary it must be limitless can you explain the kind of thing that you're doing there with that kind of argument yeah so this is an extension of what we've already seen when we look at um, this sort of universal experience with things coming from other things so if the foundation doesn't come from anything then that foundation has to in some way be relevantly different from the things that come from other things. I feel like this is a a golden key that anybody can use to unlock their own thinking about the foundation in a fresh way. Just start with this question. What could make the difference between things that are dependent, like coffee mugs, hands, everything you see, (laughs) and something that could exist in an independent foundational way? What could make that difference? And so one of the things I do in that purely actual chapter is I, I use several different tools that independently point to the same result, which is that mere differences in limitations like size or shape, you know, you, you could have a coffee cup that's big and that coffee cup that's big, it's not easier for a big coffee cup to spring into being from nothing than a small coffee cup hmm. or you could change its shape or you could change its color It's not like red things can come to be from nothing more easily than blue things or pink things. And so once you start thinking about that, then then you can lead your mind to a more general principle that, okay, anything that has arbitrary limits and boundaries is like everything else that has arbitrary limits and boundaries in the sense that they're all part of the same category of depending on some prior conditions that can explain their particular boundaries, mm-hmm. their particular limitations, their particular colors, their particular shapes. And if that's right, then the foundation of reality can't itself be fundamentally characterized in terms of arbitrary limits and boundaries. It can't be a cube because if it were a cube, it'd be like every other cube. It can't be a coffee mug. Uh, I think in that chapter, I talk about a Disney princess that <laughs> produces the universe out of her heart. You, yes, know? you do. That's, that's a right. hypothesis, right? right? Or a telephone pole, right? I mean, these are the kinds of things that come from other things. And so if that's right, then the foundation is not a telephone pole. It's not a Disney princess. It's not – it can't have a particular Mm, color or shape or size. Right. But this isn't the via negativa, isn't it? This isn't just saying not, not, not. It's not this, not this, not that. And you end up with absolute zero because – Well, there's a positive characterization. Yeah. we can say positively that it has a supreme nature. It's something. Um, you've already established that it is something yeah. upon which everything that is dependent is dependent. It is a thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You might you might think you might think, I mean, your mind might begin to think, well, everything has to come from something. Everything but then that takes us back to the original contradiction that yep. the blob of everything didn't come from something. Mm. And so the blob of everything must have a base or a floor mm. that allows the blob of everything to itself exist without an outside cause. It has sort of an internal engine of existence, which is that foundation of existence, which itself is real. It exists. It has this positive existence. It's not a negative thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to try to draw a picture in people's minds here, so if we imagine the blob of everything as being a circle, but there's nothing outside the circle. Let's get that out of our minds straight away. Everything is included within this circle. Mm -hmm. Then there's a kind of subset within that circle, say a smaller circle, that is Mm -hmm. the, the world, as we might call it. Yes. I mean, if it did have particular limits, then those particular limits would have some deeper explanation, maybe mm. in terms of some deeper aspect of the foundation itself. And and so, in fact, part of the, the bridge of reason is a quest to discover the deepest aspect of the foundation of existence. So the foundation of existence is like the deepest thing 
And then the, the deepest thing has aspects or properties. And so then I begin to look for the deepest aspect of this foundation. And it, it, that deepest aspect wouldn't itself be a coffee cup or uh, um, have the limitations of a coffee cup because it's ultimate. Yeah. Okay, so far so good. But we're a long way from God, aren't we, in terms of how a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or whatever would say, this is what I believe in, this is who I believe in. We're, we're a long way away from that, aren't we? We don't actually have many characteristics at all. We have a few important ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and even here, I think it's important to kind of celebrate a certain amount of progress on the journey. Mm. Because if you don't believe in any particular specific version of God, but you follow reason this far, that itself is a point of progress. I mean, it, this can provide a foundation for science and for an explanatory structure of reality. And it does shave off certain forms of atheism. So, I mean, mm. there are certain forms of atheism with, that would say that all of reality came into being from an initial singularity prior to which there was just nothing. Well, on the account so far, there's a foundation that exists and it doesn't come from anything. It doesn't come into being at all. Yeah. And it's not arbitrarily limited. That would be unlike our material universe, which does have various limitations. Like there's a certain number of protons in our universe. And so the foundation wouldn't be our universe. So that's something I think that's still pretty significant, even though there's more more we can find out. Okay, well, let's go and try and find more out. I'm calling this the second part of your book. You don't call it that. Um, (laughs) But you do say, I think it's a significant milestone you reach. Um, So this is where you probe various aspects of reality like um, minds human minds consciousness uh, matter whatever that is morals Mm -hmm. reason in order to say well what can that tell us perhaps can tell us about this foundation Um, obviously i don't have much time to talk all of that with you Um, and in fact i'm going to leave the moral dimension because we had a a lengthy discussion with dr glenn peoples two or three years ago on the objective nature of morals and 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 how that requires a transcendent foundation requires the existence of god so i will just draw people's attention to that particular interview with uh, dr glenn peoples so i'm going to stick to the other areas consciousness matter reason these sorts of things um now in chapter seven you have a chapter called foundation of mind you say that the foundation is mind-like and you get there by examining aspects of our own experience of our own consciousness uh, we personally experience feelings we experience free will etc and somehow you get from there to saying the foundation itself is mind-like in some mm-hmm. ways how do you do that can you talk us through that yeah sure so i think it might be helpful just to give kind of the big picture um project so mm. uh, at the beginning we're we're looking at a foundation and then there's a set of chapters about the effects, the things that we see in the world. So minds, consciousness, morality, reasoning. And then we can reason from the effects back to the nature of the cause that could allow for those kinds of effects. And there's a set of chapters there that are independent lights. Each one independently reveals this common mind-like aspect of the foundation from another direction. So we won't go into the argument for morals, but morals is sort of one light that leads to this. Mm. And then minds are another separate light that leads to the same result. These are independent lights. Mm. And I think this is helpful because it's helpful for people to see that the arguments don't just sort of stand. They, they don't have to do all the work. Like each one is an independent bit of evidence. And if, if you have independent evidence that all points to the same result, that itself is can be pretty powerful. 
Um, so when we think about the foundation of minds, minimally, by reason, the foundation must somehow be compatible with the reality in which minds emerge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, minimally, reason reveals that. And, and I don't want to even rush so far so fast because some of these minimal points that reason can reveal so clearly are actually very, very significant. And I, and I think as a philosopher, sometimes I'm tempted to run into the, the dark caves where there's the most sort of conceptual unclarity because that's where we get to do more exploration. Mm. And I think philosophers in general kind of have a problem with this is we, we run into the unclear places and we sort of advertise ourselves as people who never have answers about anything. But no, there, there are some things that we can see very clearly. And that the foundation is compatible with minds. Sure. So it has the resources. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so it has resources, it's compatible with minds, but that's not saying very much, is it? Well, it's saying something because, I mean, now Mm. we can figure out, okay, what kind of a thing could be compatible with minds and what kind of a thing could have the resources for minds? So Mm. I take some time in that chapter to talk about what minds are. First, that minds are real so that, that there really are beings that are able to think and feel and reflect. And then next, I give some arguments for why this reality of thinking and reflecting is not reducible to a material reality. Um, One just very quick argument is that you can be aware internally of what you're thinking and feeling. You can be aware of that directly, immediately, without having any direct awareness of any protons or particles or axons in your brain. Mm -hmm. But just like two sides of a coin – if the head side were the same as the tail side, then if you are aware of the one side, you would be aware of the other just by being aware of the heads, you'd be aware of the tails. But that's not true. That's how you can know that a coin has two sides. And in the same way, you have two sides. You have a conscious side and a material side. And and I think you can know this with clarity because you can be aware of your conscious side without also being aware of your material side. But if those sides were the same side, then the awareness of the one side just would be awareness of the other um, and so, you know, so therefore, I, I argue that mind is not reducible to matter. And so therefore, the foundation of mind itself has to have these properties that allow it to hmm. give rise to consciousness. And I don't think that can happen if it's purely material. I talk about this construction problem. You can't build yes. the first person consciousness purely by rearranging leaves hmm. or sand. You can't make sand sad. You need something else, some other kind of of thing. Yes, and you speak against the notion that consciousness might have arisen or emerged from specific patterns of complexity of matter. Yeah, or if it does, that's kind of just labeling the mystery. It's sort of like if you see water emerging from a rock, it's like, wow, you know, call that emergence, but rocks don't have the right nature to produce water. So let's have a closer look, like maybe that water is running through the rock. Maybe there's a source of water. Maybe there's an ocean underneath. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but how do you know that particular patterns of matter do not have the right properties if they're in the right order and complex enough yeah. to produce consciousness? How do you know that? So so I have two different arguments here. And in that chapter, I, I want to be a little bit modest in the sense that um, there's an argument from probability and then there's an argument from impossibility. So the argument from probability would say that if the foundation has a mind-like structure, then this is going to predict that it has the resources and even reasons, both the resources and reasons, to create a reality in which other minds may exist. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's also this sort of hard problem of consciousness where it's a construction problem. How in principle could you get first-person consciousness purely from impersonal forces? 
Mm-hmm. And there, it, I have to just sort of appeal to your your intuitions. Um, you know, consider a rock yeah. and ask yourself: Could that just start to have a feeling that's not self material, just on its own? I mean, it, you, you could say it has properties of powers to produce the image, but the, then those very properties of powers are themselves not purely material. They're they're of another category. They're not just um, shapes on shapes. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah. I, I get where you're coming from with this, and I tend to agree with you. But I, I wonder whether something like this might be a counterexample. People, let's say, 100 years ago, wouldn't have thought that artificial intelligence would be possible. And yet we know it is. And what we're we talking about, we're talking about matter and energy organized in particular kinds, sophisticated kinds of ways. And we get something parallel to intelligence, human intelligence going on in the computer world. Well, that's unimaginable. Perhaps consciousness will be explained in that kind of way, even though to us at the moment it's unimaginable. That is a great example because it illustrates the difference between a categorical shift and just a shift in complexity. Uh So it might be that, you know, when we're trying to build artificial intelligence, we have no idea like how we could make something that complicated, that sophisticated, something that could imitate um, our powers of thinking and reasoning. Mm-hmm. Okay, but this is the difference in, in degree of complexity. However, and then this goes back to the argument that consciousness isn't reducible to material forms. And I have to invite people to just consider their own thoughts, their own feelings, and consider the nature of that internal sensation of what it's like to be you having a feeling. That's different than acting like you have a feeling. So, you know, we can make a, a robot that acts like it's able to feel that sense of understanding that sense of aha Mm. we can we can make it so it acts like that okay it functions as if it has it's laughing you know it has the feeling of laughing in on the inside but that's different than actually having that feeling it's sort of like these sci-fi shows where they build that emotion chip Mm. right and we all understand intuitively that when data the android um, has the emotion chip and has that internal feeling of laughter that's different from when it when it's just functioning as if it's laughing or as if it's understanding, um, and so that's a that's a difference in fundamental category, not just a difference in, in complexity. And it and I want to emphasize that you can see with crystal clarity that some categories can't come from others. For example, you can see with crystal clarity that no matter how many prime numbers you add together, you will never be able to produce a prime minister, a person. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> just by adding up those numbers. I'm not sure at the moment with Boris right? Johnson, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, you laugh because your intuitions say exactly. yes to that, right? It's yes, of course. clear. Yes. That's right. And, and I think when it comes to consciousness, I think one of the reasons that maybe there is a bit of unclarity is because there's unclarity about what consciousness is. Mm-hmm. But that's why I give independent reasons to help people to see that consciousness is not reducible to the material. Once you can see that, that's when that hard problem of consciousness, I think, can spring clearly in your own mind. You can't just rearrange it. And I just have to – I don't want to belabor this too much, but just to share this little anecdote. I mean this is where it clicked for me. I remember waking up uh, one morning and just seeing dust glistening in the uh, window light. And I remember just looking up at that dust and it was just so crystal clear to me that the pattern of dust mm. was not itself – a feeling of happiness. Like there wasn't a first person being that that dust was identical to. Okay. Mm. And that was just crystal. I mean, I say, well, how do I know? Like maybe that dust is personal, <laughs> right? How do I know? It's like my mind just said, no, that that's not the right kind of thing mm. to be feeling and thinking. 
And then from there, it's just extrapolation. I mean, you can change the location of the dust. You can change its shape. It can change its size, its degree of complexity. You can put it in the form of a brain or an axon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's not going to make it conscious. To be conscious, you have to be another kind no. of thing. Okay, I'm uh, just going to be really devil's advocate now. Um, you're coming at that, of course, from a particular worldview. I mean, I think there would be many New Agers who would say to you, well, it may not look as if this material is conscious, but in fact it is. I believe that it is. Well, so, okay, so may- maybe it is conscious, right? But now that's kind of an epistemic uh, you know, question about like how could it be conscious? So I actually do want to say that um, – Boy, if we had more time, we could go into all the degrees of complexity here. But if I could just say very, very simply here, I'm okay with saying that you have a material side, you know, like the coin that has two sides. So when you see the material side, let's say the brain, you say, well, that's conscious. That's sort of like seeing a coin that has a head side and you say, oh, that has a tails. Yeah, that thing that has a head side also has a tails. But my point is that the the tail side is not the same thing as the head side. So even if that brain were somehow conscious, that consciousness is not just the pattern of particles of that brain. Okay. And so going beyond that, back to your argument, you're saying if the patterns are not sufficient to explain the consciousness that we actually experience, these are the, the material patterns, then we need to look beyond that back to the foundation. And the foundation, you're saying, is is up to the job yes. of creating and, consciousness. And, and, and also, it's, itself has some of these characteristics too. It would have these sort of mind-like qualities. It would have itself a first-person mm-hmm. sensation, which allows it to produce things of that same category. But I also want to display a bit of humility here. So Mm. this is one chapter where I share what changed my mind. So remember, you know, I came at this as one who didn't have the worldview. I mean, I was aware of the worldview, but I I really want to know what what does reason tell me? And this was a pathway that that really appealed to my own mind and has appealed to many other minds. Mm. But I also invite the readers to just consider for themselves. This is just one independent clue among several others. And so this is why I give these other arguments and each one is sufficient by itself to point to the same result that there's a mind like foundation. And of course, the foundation of reason itself, this is a very important point. Uh, You said before the interview that this is one area that people tend to neglect. You say that this is chapter 10. You discuss logic, maths. You argue that these need a foundation too. Yes. Um, Now, I'm inclined towards this, but I didn't quite find how you argued it in the book the most compelling part so could i ask you to try again (laughs) here on air yes yeah sure of Mm -hmm. course i mean this is one of those arguments that i think is rarely known Mm. and yet so powerful Mm. and i think because it's so rarely known it's maybe hard to enter in it's it's sort of unfamiliar so it takes a little bit of work to unpack it but there's this familiar thing that we do called reasoning Okay, and, and it's familiar like air. It's it's almost like reasoning is sort of a window in our soul, but we often don't look at the window itself. We don't examine what is reasoning. What is that? And in this chapter, I explore the nature of reasoning itself. And there's two aspects to reasoning. There's us reasoning, and but there's also the principles of reasoning that we're reasoning about or reasoning with. Hmm. So an example of a principle of reasoning, well, we talked about the law of non-contradiction. Nothing can be both true and not true at the same time. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what is that? What is this principle that nothing can be both true and not true at the same time? Well, it's something. Mm -hmm. It's got to be something because the principle is itself true. And nothing can be true 
unless it's there to be true. Hmm. And also truth corresponds with reality. And so now we can ask, okay, if you have a true thought about logic, about reason, then that thought by virtue of its being true must correspond to something. And I call this something uh, a logical landscape. I don't know if I call it that in hmm. the book, but my most recent – I'm continuing to think about these things and I've been thinking it's helpful to have a label for this, right? So um, Sam Harris calls the moral realm the moral landscape. And so I'm going to call this logical realm, the realm of rules of reason that true reasonable thoughts correspond to. That's I'm going to call that the logical landscape. So there's this real logical landscape. It exists and it's precisely the kind of thing that you would expect to exist if there's a supreme mind at the foundation of things. Why? Because a supreme mind would have within its fabric the supreme principles of reasoning, mm. which is precisely what, what this logical landscape provides. Why do the truths of logic need to correspond to anything? I mean, couldn't they just be necessarily true and that's it? So it's, a, it's about the nature of truth. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you mentioned my book, Defending the Correspondence Theory of Truth, just to illustrate this. Mm. If you have a cat on the mat, and then somebody thinks the cat is on the mat, that thought is true because it actually corresponds with this actual reality, this actual cat on a mat. Now, if somebody shoves that cat off, you know, just pushes it off the mat, that person who shoved that cat, pushed that cat, didn't even touch your mind, didn't even touch your thought about the cat yet. Almost like magic, your thought changed. It changed from being true to not being true. Mm -hmm. How could that be? Like, how could your thought about the cat change from true to not true when the person who shoved the cat didn't even touch your thought? Well, if you think of truth as correspondence with reality, that totally makes sense of what's going on here. The reason your, your thought shifted from true to not true is because reality changed. And truth is about reality. Mm. And if, if that's right, then true logical thoughts, even necessarily true ones, are going to be about an actual reality. In fact, if they're necessarily true, then they're necessarily about a reality. But why does that point to anything beyond itself? Well, the law of contradiction is necessarily true because it just is the fact that there are no contradictions anywhere <laughs> at any time. Yes. Well, what is that fact? That's it. Right. So that's it. You're saying the fact that there are no, you know, that itself is a reality. It's a kind of conceptual reality that there are no true mm -hmm. contradictions. And that conceptual reality exists even when you're not having any thought about it i mean it's a fact that there are no contradictions that is a re that's a reality but does the conceptual reality exist when you're not thinking about it or just the bare reality with nobody thinking about it there's no concept it just is in well, fact so so, mm -hmm. so here yeah so so here's a reason to think that it exists even when you're not thinking mm -hmm. about it it's the, it's kind of an ordinary reasoning it's that when you're taking a logic exam there are correct answers to your logic exam and those answers don't depend on whether you, mm -hmm. Julian, <laughs> happen to be thinking logically. <laughs> like before you were born, the, 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 there were logic exams and there are correct answers. And what's true of you is true of me. Is in fact, it's true of every human being. Uh, for every single human being, that human being could be eliminated and there would, it would still be a fact that there are no contradictions. That would still be true and it would be a necessary yeah. fact. I actually have a, a more technical article where – I, I draw this out in some detail. It's called From Necessary Truth to Necessary Existence. And I talk about how truth corresponds with reality, but also the necessity of truth 
there's an axiom in logic that says that logic itself is necessary <laughs> so that, so that the okay. very necessity yeah. is necessary and so that but i still it, yeah. yeah but i still don't see i mean i can see we have the the concept in the mind and we have the reality out there in the world as it were but i don't see why we need to step back further and say that the foundation to all reality itself needs to ground those things. I'm not saying that it doesn't, sure. but I don't see, this is why I said what I said about this particular argument, that it, I didn't find it compelling at the time, and I'm still not quite there with it. Is there anything else you can say? Because we need to move on, of course, because we could talk about this forever. <laughs> but, sure, uh, sure. Yeah. Well, of course, there's always more than I can say, Julian. <laughs> of course, absolutely. <laughs> like you said. Of course, yes. Um, but another side of this is understanding how the foundation can have the power to produce beings like us who can discover mm. these logical principles. And there, there's an argument from probability that uh, if the foundation has these intentional powers, this mind-like structure, this is going to give it a mechanism that's going to make it not so improbable that they're going to be beings like us who can discover this logical landscape. Mm. Whereas if the foundation is instead purely mindless, then you don't have that same mechanism. And then this leads us to that deep puzzle of how it is that any beings yes. could ever discover these principles of, of reason. I mean, it is sort of odd that reality just happens to include mm. principles of how to think well. I mean, what? True. <laughs> that seems like True. the kind of reality that would be personal, that would sort of care about thinking well. Yes. It does seem to make the world that we actually experience more plausible than it would be otherwise. Yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, we, we've got to move on because uh, we've got about 10 minutes left. And um, I have to ask you a couple of things here, which I really don't want to miss out. You, you say then these are the two penultimate chapters. Uh, you answer some challenges. You remove some barriers, as you say, is, is how you put it. Um, there are loads of things to discuss here. But there's one particular thing that I would like to talk about because this is a major barrier for a lot of people thinking about God here. And this is the, the collection of questions to do with evil and suffering uh you know why if god is perfectly good because you argue you do get to the point of having all these characteristics these qualities of the foundation uh, mm -hmm. there's a whole page full of them which i won't read but uh, well if i can just say the, the, very briefly in just two yeah. seconds sure we, we talked about you know what is the deepest attribute of the foundation hmm. that would account for all of its other attributes and I, and I make the argument that if it's if it's supreme if it has supreme value it's most worthy to be worshipped as a being could be thought to be then it would have supreme thinking. It would have supreme power. It would have supreme existence. It would it would be able to exist on its own. And so this supreme quality would predict and explain how and why it would have all of its other attributes. It would even explain how it could be purely actual. And it would be supremely good as well because we missed out the moral aspect yeah. here. But that would be one of the yes. characteristics. Yeah, okay. exactly. So why? Do we have evil and suffering? And I don't want you, because of the time, I don't want you to go on to you know, the free will defense, because I think people will be very familiar with that kind of thing. But how come there is this the natural evil seems to have nothing to do with our decisions whatsoever? These mysterious evils, which are just so terrible, you know, the Holocaust, etc. So, I mean, how come those things exist? You, you do address that in the book. Yeah, so um, I, I lay out different versions of this argument, and I apply this tool of reasoning to investigate each of these versions. And I mean, I don't want to give sort of an easy answer. I mean, sure. part of the result of thinking about this is a kind of intellectual humility. And one of my goals is to separate the clear from the unclear. So what does reason reveal clearly? And I, I make the argument that um, it may be unclear, you know, what God's reasons are, but it doesn't follow that it's clear that God couldn't have any good reasons. Hmm. And then I give some particular reasons. And sort of one global or large-scale reason that um, kind of organizes more specific reasons is about the value of soul-building adventures where beings are able to grow, to discover things through science, 
problems, ignite purposes, that there's challenges, but all the challenges are part of a greater story that everything works for good in, in the long term. And it's not to say that God's planning the bads, because I do think there's yes. free will in there, that there, mm-hmm. God has given us a kind of kingly nature so that we can actually be responsible for the direction of our lives uh, to some degree. Mm-hmm. And so this can lead to unfortunate effects, mm-hmm. but that everything that's unfortunate is part of a greater story. Mm-hmm. And that, in fact, we can predict by reason that if the foundation is supreme, that everything is going to be part of a greater story. Like nothing's going to happen for just like no good reason or, or completely, how should I put this, um, in a way that is incompatible with supreme goodness, that everything's going to be part of a greater story. And so this is exactly what we find in near-death experiences when people report this experience of a being of light. Even people who don't believe in God will report leaving their body and, and encountering a being of light. And there's this sense of higher purpose that your life really matters. And this is kind of the take home of the whole book that your life, like this is sort of the outcome. Like, why do I even care about this question of God's existence? Because at the end of the day, it's about the meaning of your life. Yes. Your life has meaning. And that when you face problems and trials, all of that is part of a greater, a greater meaning for you. Yeah. And I can, you know, I can hear some people listening to this thinking you're ducking the question here, but I'm reading your book. You're not, you clearly are not. Um, and that is quite powerful. This vision that you have here of if you want a world in which there are people, you want a world in which there is love, you want a world in which there is challenge and, and a narrative, etc. You're going to have, mm-hmm. you can have certain conditions to bring that about. And it may well be that it is necessarily a byproduct of conditions like that, that you're going to have things that happen that are not optimal. You're going to have things that happen what we might call a tragedy. They're not going to be every day mm-hmm. all the time, but they're, they're going to be there. And it may be that you can't create a world in which there are none mm-hmm. of these things. Is that the kind of thing that you're driving at? Yes, exactly. You put that very well. Yeah, there's this kind of natural law, natural order. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many different aspects here, but another aspect just is that in order for there to be an arena mm-hmm. where we're optimizing so many good things, there can be some things that are just deeply unfortunate. And, and we don't want to say, I, I don't want to say, well, God planned that unfortunate thing yeah. specifically. It's more that, that there can be even accidents that happen that are just unfortunate, even if Every negative thing can be part of a greater good that far outweighs it. Um, it's still something that is part of this larger context where there are many things to optimize. Okay, so if you're going to have butterflies, you have to have wasps as well. Okay, so uh, <laughs> you end up here, this is on the other side of the bridge. Now, you've already touched on this, where you speak purpose into our lives based upon this reasoning that you've been following here mm-hmm. i love the way you did this this is on page 181 um i will just pause just for a second to read a little bit of this i think this is very important that you end up here just quote this very short paragraph the foundation of the world is the foundation of your life story it is the source of all souls all ideas and all objects in the universe it is the source of your mind it is the source of your breath it is the treasure within all treasures the foundation is the king in the midst of all kingly creatures the foundation fashions the world for heroes like you very poetic Mm. um and a very necessary place to end up i think however i think you did take a bit of a risk ending up like that didn't you because i think some people would say ah you see now you can see that he's the evangelist not the philosopher Did you you take that decision easily? That's so interesting because I actually got a criticism on the other side that uh, somebody wrote in um, and saw one of my drafts and said that that wasn't evangelistic enough. In fact, it sounds like you're affirming somebody who, even if they don't believe in God, you're calling them a kingly creature and you're saying, Mm. you know, your life matters and 
So that's very interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I just there's sort of this middle ground, I guess. Here, I mean, I, the, my take-home message is that your life matters, and th- that is evangelistic in the sense that there's this purpose behind the truth. It's not just truth for its own sake; it's also truth because it's meaningful to you. But I also wanted it to be meaningful to people, even if they weren't fully persuaded. Mm. I want them to see why this truth matters. And um, and I also wanted to say that because I think sometimes people feel like Christians will only, or theists in general, will only approve of them if they agree with them. Yes. And, and I wanted to say something at the end that whether you agree with me or not, I think you are a kingly creature. <laughs> You're a hero in your yes. domain. Indeed. Yes, yes. Made in the image of God, as we are so often say. Yes. yes, indeed. Well, thank you ever so much indeed for joining us to discuss this book, which I really did enjoy very much. Um, just before we do part, you have a website, don't you? You've got, you've got a lot of, I think, academic materials on there. Could you just tell us what your website is, how people can get there? Sure, yeah. At com, or just Google my name, Josh Rasmussen. And I have resources there, including a question section where you can ask me anything. Uh-huh. And I've got various resources and articles there for you. Excellent. I'll put that detail, of course, in the show notes. It's always difficult to pick that out, isn't it, from uh, what people say on air. Um, yeah, so this is the book, How Reason Can Lead to God. It's, as I say, I think it's an excellent book. Very readable, avoids jargon. It's rigorous, though, deals with these very deep matters, as you all picked up from the conversation, covers lots of fascinating ground, and uh, presents this rational vision of how fundamental reality Maybe, or indeed, both of us here speaking will say is indeed the fact the case uh, that God does mm-hmm. does exist. Um, I do recommend it to listeners, uh, not just to people who already believe, but also perhaps, perhaps even more so, as per your dedication in the book to my skeptical friends, perhaps even more so to people who don't currently believe in God's existence. Because I think if you, even if you end up remaining unpersuaded by Josh's arguments here, at least you'll have had the experience of something of what it's like to look at philosophical theology and to feel how it is to think through some of these fundamental questions in that kind of way, which I think is an education in its own right. So if I may um, just add right here, people have written me um, after reading the book and then through subsequent conversation uh, and have thanked me that it's helped them to believe in God after not having believed in God. So this is one of those books that can actually bring that kind of encouragement to somebody. It's not just written to kind of rationalize uh, a believer's perspective. It can actually touch somebody and challenge their view if they don't believe. Absolutely. And it's not just an argument, is it? It's yeah. it's a kind of intellectual journey that you're inviting people on. We're all invited to join you in that journey. I think I think it's excellent. Thank you very much. So this is How Reason Can Lead to God, A Philosopher's Bridge to Faith by Joshua Rasmussen, published 2019, available, of course, from the publisher Intervasti Press and uh, generally online. I'll have links, of course, in the show notes. Thank you again for coming on the show. It's a delight to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you.